Please turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to talk about angels this morning. Uh, angels are, are very popular. You go into any Christian bookstore, you're going to see a lot of images of angels, and they're usually very round and soft uh, and completely non-threatening. That's the popular image of angels. It's interesting, too, that uh, the non-Christian world is very fascinated by angels as well, but fallen angels right now are a real hip. What I find most interesting, though, is that the non-Christian world really has a more biblical view of what angels are like. If you see the, the illustrations, the paintings, the drawings, the movies of angels that are fallen, they're spooky. They're scary, they're strong, they're powerful, which from a biblical perspective is probably a little bit more accurate than this, right? That's not what angels are like. In fact, if you read the biblical accounts, every time an angel shows up on the scene and interacts with a person, the first thing that the angel says is, don't be afraid, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Verse 30. Verse 29, the angel appears to Mary. She was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting this was, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Chapter 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. The angels are everywhere in the birth narratives. They're always showing up, and every time they show up, people go, Whoa! They're afraid. So this morning, we're going to do a little bit of systematic theology, okay? That is, we're going to look at verses from Genesis uh, through uh, the Pentateuch and into the prophets and all the way in the New Testament into the book of Revelation, so you need to be ready to turn a lot. We're going to be moving back and forth throughout the Bible, and we're going to just be studying angels. Who are they? Why do they show up? What are they about? What we're going to discover is there are three primary roles for the angels. Uh, They are worshipers, they are warriors, and they are messengers, They're worshipers, they're warriors, and they're messengers. Earlier, Mike read this passage in Psalm 103. I'm going to give it to you in another translation. This is the New Living Translation. It says this, Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Uh, The psalmist is calling all of creation to praise God. And ultimately, the reason for all of creation is that we would worship. And so the psalmist goes through all different facets of creation, and he addresses the angels in particular, and he reminds them as if they could forget. You're created to worship. Praise the Lord. All creation praise the Lord. Let all that is in me praise the Lord. And that's the first and foremost thing that we see angels doing. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2 again and verse 13. It says, Suddenly there, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, literally a heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Uh, What we see angels doing in the birth narratives is praising God. And one of the first things that I notice as I read these is that there's a lot of them. 
And notice it says here in verse 13, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of a heavenly army praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. How many? How many is a multitude? Well, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 5 and we get a little hint in Revelation chapter 5 about how many angels there are that God has created to praise him. Revelation 5 and verse 11. This is John speaking. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In verse 11 we are told that the number of angels was myriads of myriads. Literally, uh, it's 10,000 times 10,000. Does anybody uh, quickly can tell me what that number is? 10,000 times 10,000? Got any math majors or calculators on your iPhone? It's a finite number, right? Well, it, at least so in English. Uh, the word 10,000 in Greek was the biggest number they could express. Okay, we hear 10,000, we think one zero 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 times one zero 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 zero. But in Greek, it means the biggest number you can conceive of times the biggest number you can conceive of. Okay? That's how many angels are praising God. So imagine if you were a shepherd and that's what confronted you. One angel shows up and he show, the glory of the Lord is shining about him and then all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these creatures are there praising the Lord in front of you. Gustave Doré created a series of paintings uh, that depict uh, his image of biblical scenes. This is uh, his image of uh, either Daniel or Revelation. It's called Divine Comedy. Uh, in the center is the glory of the Lord. And around it are heavenly hosts, too numerable to count, coming out from the throne, praising the Lord. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Uh, if you haven't discovered this yet, you can't understand Revelation unless you understand Daniel. And the content of what Daniel was revealed about the end times and how God would set all things right is the same as the content of what John was revealed. And the images that John saw of heaven are just like the images that Daniel saw of heaven. And what did each of them see? They saw so many angels that you cannot even count them. And what are they doing? They're surrounding their th the throne and they're not only praising God, but they're leading the worship service. Myriads upon myriads. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said when he was about to go to the cross and Peter wanted to intervene and help him out with one sword. He said, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, that is 12 times 6,000. In other words, Jesus says, God has a few to spare. <laughs> and at this moment, he could send 72,000, which would more than overwhelm Rome. There are plenty of angels, and why are they created? They're created for the worship of God, first and foremost, 
for his worship. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 10, and verse 4. Daniel 10, verse 4. Daniel wrote, On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me, they didn't see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. Now imagine if you were a shepherd, and you're just out in the field minding your own business, And all of a sudden, God pulls back the veil of heaven and one angel shows up and he's glorious. And he's beautiful because he has been in the presence of the Lord. The the glory of God, the radiance of God has permeated his very being and he's shining brighter than anything you've ever seen before, brighter than the sun. And he makes an announcement about the son of God. God's son has come to the earth to save mankind, and then he pulls back the veil further and millions upon millions of angels that look like this, that put Daniel on his face as if he were dead. They shine in front of you. And when they cry out, it's an earth-shaking thing. The last two years, we've taken our kids down to um, First Baptist Church in Houston to see their Christmas pageant. Um, Because we don't do a Christmas pageant here in You'll see one of the reasons why in just a minute. Um, but it's really an amazing performance. And they begin with uh, just kind of Christmas tunes, just Christmassy kind of stuff, Bing Crosby stuff, whatever. Then they move into Christmas hymns, and then they move into the Christmas story. And the Christmas story is incredibly moving. They've got a guy there, I, I, I don't know if he's a professional opera singer or what, but, but his, he, he does the character of Isaiah. And uh, this year we're, we were sitting, uh, Isaiah was in a little raised up booth thing and he was singing like right down into our faces and my son turned to me and goes that's scary <laughs> it's just so powerful the whole thing is so powerful they move from Isaiah's prophecy about uh, the son who's going to come born of a virgin and then these years of waiting and the years of mourning and silence and exile and then finally the son comes and they have a caravan and they bring in literally a you know a little baby brand new baby Real, alive, not a doll, anything like that. They've got a caravan coming through. Part of the caravan, though, that's, that's really most powerful is um, they have an elephant. Okay? Worth the price of admission. I, I, I've never been that close to an elephant uh, this large in church. Right? <laughs> so... Uh, our aisles aren't wide enough for, for an elephant of this size, maybe some goats or something like that. But, uh, you know, so you can see here, we're, this is where we are. We're one row away. And I kept imagining in my mind, you know, if this elephant just kind of goes nuts for a second and just boom, crashes over everything. Um, 
So I was just click, 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 right? Even as he passed. And what's amazing is um, he passed and the whole visually, you know, looked at my kids and they're like, whoa, it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, and then the elephant passes and the elephant's about 20 feet past. Then the smell hits you. <laughs> Apparently you can only clean up an elephant so much. And, but the whole thing, the point is this, the whole thing is just overwhelming. And I was thinking about it as we went down and we saw it again this year. They had the elephant back and, and uh, I was thinking, you know, there's just not much in our lives that is really truly overwhelming to us like, like that. Or we get, we get troubled by our circumstances, but I mean a, an experience that you just go, Wow. We, we go to the movies and we want to be amazed by the special effects, but we know it's just a show, it's just two-dimensional, it's on a screen, and then we step out as the show ends. But I mean, something that's really truly overwhelming and powerful. Imagine for a moment being an angel out in the field in complete and utter darkness. In the middle of the night, and all of a sudden your whole world is lit up by these glorious beings. Isaiah describes it like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year of his death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim, which are another rank of angels, literally means burning ones. The burning ones stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another back and forth. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Angels created for the glory of God, created to worship God, created ultimately for the same purpose as us, to be worshipers of God. Second reason they're created is that they're warriors. Angels are warriors. This morning, Ben came in early with me and he said, Dad, could you do another quiz in church? Uh, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible thing. He thought that was pretty funny. He likes trivia and quizzes. And I said, oh, I don't really have anything. Then I thought, I, I've got something for you, okay? So here's the quiz of the morning. Uh, what's the first angel that we see in the Bible? First angel. Okay, great. The devil, Satan, sure. In the form of a certain fallen angel. That's the first one. Uh, what's the second angel that we see? Or the next angels that we see? No, man. After the shortest verse quiz, no one will call out confidently. Um, here's a picture of it. This is, again, a, a painting by uh, Gustave Doré. This is after Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And um, there's a couple inaccuracies in the, the picture. I still I like the, the visual, but the verse is this. It says, so God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, cherubim is plural. There was more than one angel. How many, we don't know. But at least two, probably multiple. And uh, in their hands, there is uh, this, this flaming sword. So um, it's, again, spooky, frightening, overwhelming. Adam and Eve were not tempted to fight their way back into the garden, right? <laughs> flaming sword guarding the way. The angel is a warrior. Uh, angels that we see in the Bible are strong and they're powerful. They're not round and soft. They're not children. Uh, they're warriors and they are equipped for war. I want you to turn with me back to uh, the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 22. In verse 22. In Numbers chapter 22, 
Balak, the king of Moab, hired a professional uh, cursor named uh, Balaam to bring a curse on the nation of Israel. Verse 22 says, But God was angry because Balaam was going to deliver the curse. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a tall wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick. This is the best part of the story. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam didn't stop and say, wow, this is really weird. No, he just starts talking with the donkey. This is my favorite part. He just, as if this is normal, he just talks. Then Balaam said back to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey (laughs) on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? He said, hmm, let me think about that. No, I guess you haven't. You've been a very loyal donkey. You don't usually backtalk me either. (laughs) Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Uh, Dory did a painting of this as well with Balaam on his donkey. Uh, And the angel of the Lord standing in the way, his sword drawn. What's remarkable to me about this story is we know angels, they're spirit beings. But that doesn't mean that they have no form. They live primarily, apparently, in another dimension, so we don't see them all of the time. But that doesn't mean they're not present. And periodically, God uh, allows people to see angels. And they see the form of angels. And apparently also angels are able to enter into human history. And this angel tells Balaam, I had authority actually to kill you. In other words, the sword in his hand was real. They're powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 32 verse 21 says, The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. One angel. Wow. They're mighty, mighty warriors. I want you to turn back the book of Daniel with me again in chapter 10. Read further Daniel's description. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. It says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. You prayed, and God dispatched me to come and respond to your prayers. 
But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that is a, a fallen angel, a demonic force, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Verse 20. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of the truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. What's going on? There's a battle in heaven. That's what's happening here. There is a battle. These angels are not merely ethereal beings. They have form. And what are they doing? Well, God's angels are battling against satanic angels. And they're strong and they're powerful and they're mighty. And they're organized. There is a, there is a, a prince over Persia and a prince over Greece that is demonic forces who are in charge of their ranks over these different nations. Uh, there is Michael, we're told in Jude 9, he is uh, considered the archangel. He's also the angel for the nation of Israel. He's the chief angel. He's the commanding general of all of the ranks of angels. So these angels are powerful, but they're also organized. And Daniel is praying and God is mobilizing angelic forces to go and do battle on his behalf with men and women. Uh, Gabriel's name literally means the strength of God. So as they battle, it's not merely a a battle of words among them. There is a a real and genuine battle going on among the angelic forces. Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 6. I'm going to give you a few phrases here from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is very much concerned with the role of the church, the body of Christ, in God's cosmic plan. And so Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians describing the interactions between the church, humans, the body of Christ, and the angelic forces and what's going on. It says in verse 1, rule and authority and power and dominion in the heavenly places. These are terms not just of strength, they're also terms of organization. Uh, The prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly place. In other words, uh, the, the good, holy, unfallen angels are organized and they are frequently called the host of heaven in my translation, which means literally an army. They are God's army. The fallen forces are also organized against God and there are ranks that they fulfill in their function. Paul addresses that in the book of Ephesians. Matthew chapter 18, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these children, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's a really interesting verse. In other words, there are angelic forces that are assigned to nations. There are angelic forces that are assigned to individuals. These little ones, these children, They have an angel assigned to them. And that angel continually beholds the face of my father. That that angel has access to me. Don't don't treat the children as insignificant. Now, I don't know this for certain, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are angelic forces that stay with you for your entire life. Because they are responsible to war with us 
on behalf of God. Remember, uh, the whole concept of spiritual warfare, we, we misunderstand sometimes. It's not a conflict between God and Satan. Right? That's not a fair fight. <laughs> God would just crush Satan immediately. The reason it's a protracted battle is because God is using created beings through whom he wages war. He uses angels and he uses us and he uses us with angels together. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says, Are they, that is angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What are they doing? They're battling with us and they're battling on our behalf. Okay, they're co-laboring with us. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. Okay, at the end of Ephesians, Paul describes in some detail uh, this concept of spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, how do we do that? Put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because the devil, devil is scheming against you and wants to destroy your life. As we saw last week, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to wreck your life. That is, either through making your life uh, mediocre and making you just kind of a good American average type person who doesn't offend anyone. That takes you out of the battle spiritually. Or causing your life to completely fall apart and destroy through sinful choices. doesn't matter to Satan, but he just wants to wreck your life and make you ineffective in battle. So he is scheming against you. He is poking and prodding to find vulnerabilities. How do we fight against him? It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, the struggle isn't merely in the physical realm and what we see. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that in proclaiming it I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak." Uh, Paul says that, that there, are, there are two offensive weapons. There are many defensive weapons, doctrine, truth, faith, that guard and protect us. We can speak truth into our own minds and into the lives of others. Uh, there is the word of God offensively. It is the sword of the spirit. And then Paul says there's also another weapon, which is prayer. So he says, pray for me. The boldest of all bold apostles that I wouldn't shrink back, that I wouldn't have fear, that I would be bold in proclaiming the gospel of truth. Pray for me. This is how you enter into the spiritual battle. You wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and you pray. And he says, pray for one another. What happens when we pray? Not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure how it works that an absolutely sovereign God who knows all things would call us to participate in his work in a real way through prayer, but he does. 
Daniel gives us a little glimpse. Daniel prays and God dispatches angels. And the angels are entering into warfare with one another and demonic forces. And then they are entering into warfare with Christians, with believers. Uh, Elijah was brought food by the angels to sustain him. The angels ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. So perhaps what happens, imagine when you are tempted, maybe it is your own flesh stirring something up. Perhaps it's a demonic force helping to create circumstances that make you vulnerable. And when friends are praying for you, angelic forces are coming to your aid. Maybe they're creating other circumstances that allow you that way of escape. But they're doing battle on your behalf. When you pray for others and when others pray for you, when you pray for yourself, that is what engages or enlists these angelic forces to fight back, to push back so that we live holy lives, so that we have courage to live truth and to speak truth. And they are laboring along with us, not God against Satan, but God through us and alongside of angels to do battle against the kingdom of darkness. I don't understand all that is going on there, and I don't understand, again, how a sovereign God can enlist us in a real way, but he does. And he says, therefore, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Not just in the world of circumstances that we see, but also apparently in the unseen angelic realm. So angels are worshipers, they're warriors, and then they're also messengers. Angels are also messengers. In fact, the Greek word angelos, means literally messenger. So when Joshua sent spies into the land, uh, they're not leaving because it's getting really bad or spooky. We're going we're to do communion in a minute. Um, the spies that went into the land, those are called messengers. When Jesus sent people ahead into Samaria and different parts, he sent his apostles as messengers, angelos. The angels are a special class of messenger. And one of the ways that they minister to us is that they bring the word of God. Okay? Historically, the angels were the the vehicle through which God brought Scripture. They also can remind us of truth. Uh, The word gospel actually is from the same root, angelon, or angelion, you angelion, meaning uh, the good message. The good message. So Gabriel, the the angel who is uh, strong and powerful, God's mighty one, first appeared to Daniel, and the message that he delivered to Daniel was all about how God was going to move nations and kingdoms and ultimately bring his king, who would destroy all other kingdoms and establish God's kingdom on earth. Okay, God's Messiah, God's anointed one. Well then, Gabriel is the one who gets the privilege of showing up again. He shows, shows up and speaks to Zacharias, and then he speaks to Mary, and he announces first uh, the coming forerunner, that Malachi had promised, who's going to pave the way for the Lord. He's going to get the hearts of people ready to receive God's son. That's John the Baptist. And then he turns to Mary and he says, but your child will be the son of God, miraculously conceived in you, Uh, not by normal human methods, but by the Holy Spirit, uh, God taking on human flesh. And this one will be our savior, Not, not just our savior, but savior of the whole world. Because he will live and he will die on a cross to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. And that's the the gospel message. That is uh, the good message. The good news that's announced to us. 
Now, you know, I, I don't, don't like to end any sermon without having some kind of direct application. So how do we apply angels? Um, angels are very interesting. Fascinating. Uh, some people get preoccupied with them. But they're not the primary actors in the Bible. God is the point. Right? God is the one who is acting. However, I think angels do reveal to us something significant about our relationship with God. They reveal to us that God wants to communicate to us. And God uses a variety of really creative means through which he communicates, including angels, because God wants us to know him. That's why he sent his son. The, the logos, or the word made flesh, the, the ultimate form of communication that we can understand because he's just like us. One who took on human form so that he could, in fact, die for us. And so as we enter into this uh, Christmas season, this reminder of God taking on human flesh, communicating to us in a really powerful way, uh, I want to ask you just two questions. First is, um, are you ready this Christmas season to communicate the message of Christmas? I can almost guarantee that each of us is going to interact with friends and relatives who do not know Jesus Christ. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to to speak that word about the meaning of Christmas? If the opportunity comes up, uh, are you prepared uh, to live differently and to serve and to sacrifice throughout the holiday for friends and family who may not know Jesus Christ? It's time for us to to get our minds and our hearts ready. In a week, we'll be with friends and family and relatives, oftentimes in really stressful situations. Uh, I encourage you to spend this week getting yourself spiritually prepared to enter into these relationships uh, with the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Second application is maybe you have never received that message yourself personally. Uh, If you've grown up in America, you've, you've seen all kinds of business around Christmas and trees and elves and Santa and snowflakes and even angels that are soft and round and so forth. But the message of Christmas, have you ever received Jesus Christ? God in human flesh who died for you. Uh, If you have not, let me encourage you. uh, Talk to one of your friends or family members who who know Jesus. As we close today, we're going to celebrate communion. The men want to come forward and serve us. I want to encourage you to take a few moments. Uh, This is a reminder of God communicating to us in in a really powerful way. Him taking on flesh that is a reminder through the bread and then the cup his blood spilled for us and so as the men are serving us we've got a few moments just to quietly meditate Uh, let's just take a few moments to thank God for sending his son Jesus Christ and taking on human flesh for us Uh, and then we'll take the cup and the wine together Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, This bread is my body. It represents the physical suffering that I will undergo as a result of your sin. Let's take the bread together. After the bread, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, for God made flesh uh, 
who could live a perfect life and then die on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for this season, the opportunities that we have um, to serve and to sacrifice and to show uh, the love of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, grant us this opportun- these opportunities, and I pray that you'd uh, give us eyes to see the opportunities and courage and boldness uh, to take those opportunities. I pray that we would be reminded to pray for one another uh, as we enter into these um, relationships again with friends and family, uh, that we would have sensitivity and kindness and courage. I pray, Father, that we would um, love our friends and family well. I thank you, Father, that we can do so through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.